Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, celebrating the legacy of Harry T. Moore, the first martyr of the contemporary civil rights movement. Nobody said a word for a few minutes. Then my Uncle George turned around and he said, Van, I guess I'm going to have to tell you the story. Your house was bombed Christmas night. Your father's dead, and your mother's in the hospital. We'll visit the McClarty Treasure Museum, where silver, gold, and artifacts from Spanish shipwrecks are on display. I'm constantly amazed at how many people do not realize the history in their backyard. And we'll travel to Tallahassee to hear some traditional North Florida blues. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth, his voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. It happened in Florida, the land of flowers. It was on a Christmas night. Men came stealing through the orange grove. Men of hate carrying dynamite. It was to a little cottage. The family, the name of Moore. At the window hung sprigs of holly, a fine wreath at the door. It was on a Christmas evening and the family prayers were said. Mother, father, daughter, and grandmother went to bed. The father's name was Harry Moore of the NAACP. He fought for the life for us to live. Black folk must be free. It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth, his voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Over the past decade or so, more and more Floridians have been learning the story of Harry T. Moore. First came Ben Green's book, Before His Time, The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore, America's First Civil Rights Martyr. Next came the PBS documentary, Freedom Never Dies. The annual Moore Heritage Festival of the Arts and Humanities held each spring features educational workshops and performing arts presentations. The group Sweet Honey in the Rock recorded The Ballad of Harry Moore, a Langston Hughes poem set to music by Bernice Johnson Reagan. If you don't know the story of Harry T. Moore, don't feel bad, you're not alone. Harry Tyson Moore was born on November 18, 1905 in Houston, Florida, located in Suwannee County. 
Moore moved to Mims in 1925 after being offered a job to teach fourth grade at the Black Elementary School in Cocoa. He would later teach ninth grade at Titusville Negro School, where he was also principal. Harry was introduced to teacher Harriet Vita Sims in 1925, and the two married on Christmas Day 1926. The couple had two daughters, Peaches and Evangeline. Education was very important in the Moore household, and the entire family graduated from Bethune-Cookman College in Daytona Beach. Eventually, Harry became Florida coordinator of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Moore's daughter Evangeline remembers helping her father with his NAACP activities. When I got to the age, I'd say maybe 11, 12, 12 years old, I was able to help him in the office that we had in the dining room. Um, I would help him to run off things on the ditto machine. I'd address envelopes, I'd lick envelopes, I'd lick stamps, and I always accompanied him to the post office. I didn't think he was supposed to ever get out of my sight. So, uh, yes, I did help him. And I was very active in the Florida State Conference of Youth Councils as well. Harry T. Moore became very active in Florida's civil rights movement decades before more well-known leaders became involved. Moore traveled throughout the state working for the integration of schools, improved voting rights for African Americans, and equal treatment for black people in the legal system. Although Harry T. Moore often traveled during the week, his daughter Evangeline remembers many weekend trips with the family to patronize black businesses and theaters in Orlando and Daytona. About once a month we did go to Orlando or Daytona, depending on where the Best Western was showing. And we would do uh, our shopping. My mother made all of our clothes, and so we'd shop at Sears for material and that household items. And then after that, Orlando and Daytona both had very nice black restaurants. So we'd go and have dinner, and then we always ended up at, uh, at the movies. And it was always a Western because that was my dad's favorite. After years of fighting for equal pay for black teachers and better opportunities for African-American students, Harry T. Moore was fired from his job as teacher and principal of Titusville Negro School. He dedicated his full attention to civil rights issues, but often met with resistance while trying to spread the word of equality in black churches and schools. During that time, when we were all together, um, it was very, very sad, so far as I'm concerned, because I can remember going to churches where Daddy would ask if he could speak and, and tell the people about the NAACP and um, perhaps start a, a chapter in that particular church. And the ministers always waited until the benediction was said, and people, some of them had gotten up and, and left before they would let him say anything. That still hurts, even now. Mm -hmm. um, so far, Daddy did teach black history because he taught all of us in fourth and fifth, um, uh, fifth and sixth grade. Uh, but it was not a part of the curriculum. He did it on his own, and I'm sure that's another reason why they fired him. Uh, but I, yes, we do need, right now, we need some strong black leaders. That, that's the main thing. 
And of course, yes, teachers should realize what my dad went through to get their, their salaries equalized. And yes, they should be members of the NAACP, but uh, I suppose they're still afraid as they were back in the 40s and 50s. That's, that's the only answer that I can give you. As an educator, Harry T. Moore was passionate about voting rights for African Americans, teaching his students not only how to fill out a ballot, but how to evaluate candidates and become informed about important issues. As a civil rights activist, Moore co-founded the Progressive Voters League in 1944, an organization that registered tens of thousands of black voters in less than seven years. Harry T. Moore was an outspoken opponent of the notoriously racist Lake County Sheriff Willis McCall. In the infamous Groveland rape trial, McCall falsely accused four young black men of raping a white woman. Many believe it was Moore's involvement in the Groveland case that led to a bomb being placed under his home on Christmas night, 1951. Ben Green reads from his book, Before His Time, the untold story of Harry T. Moore, America's first civil rights martyr. On Christmas evening, Old Dixie is deserted and forsaken. A half mile down the road on the right, a rutted driveway disappears into an orange grove. <clears throat> the driver of the car cuts his headlights, pulls onto the shoulder of the hard road, and turns around facing the way he came. Hurriedly, two men emerge from the car. The taller man opens the trunk and shines a flashlight into it. With practiced efficiency, his burly partner removes a package and with a nod to his partner, crosses Old Dixie and hurries up the rutted drive. Even in the darkness and fog, the man knows where he's going. He has been here before. The white sand driveway is a beacon under his feet, leading him into the heart of the grove. 500 yards ahead, the grove opens onto a small clearing. A house stands all alone. It's a simple, one-story frame house, raised off the ground on cinder blocks. No lights are on. The family car is gone. No one is home. The man crosses the open yard, ducks around the northeast corner of the porch, and crawls under the house. In a matter of minutes, five or ten for a practiced hand, he leaves his package, then scrambles out from under the house. Quickly now, his adrenaline pumping, he backtracks through the grove, pausing behind a young grapefruit tree for a moment to double-check himself, then running wildly, finally stopping behind an orange tree 200 yards away. From here, he paces nervously back and forth, waiting and watching. Two obvious questions arise. Who are these men who journeyed here on Christmas night? And what mysterious present have they brought? This much is certain. They are no magi bearing frankincense and myrrh, for what they have brought to this family is the most horrible Christmas present imaginable. I had reservations on a train from Washington, D.C. to Titusville called the Silver Media. Evangeline Moore. I was to leave, and I did leave on the day after Christmas at 7 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I did not know what had happened until I got off the train on the 27th and I found a delegation of aunts, uncles, cousins, and what have you at the train station, but my parents were missing, and I knew at that point that there was something wrong. So I greeted all of my relatives, and finally my sister and I were riding in my Uncle George's car. That was my mother's brother, one of her brothers. 
Um, we got into the car and sat down and I just asked, I said, well, where is my mom and my dad? So nobody said a word for a few minutes. Then my Uncle George turned around and he said, Van, I guess I'm going to have to tell you the story. Your house was bombed Christmas night. Your father's dead and your mother's in the hospital. That's the way I found out. In the past, Evangeline Moore has said that she believes it was her father's involvement in the Groveland case that led to the bombing of her family home. Today, she has a different perspective. I consider his being able to get that 100,000 black folk uh, registered to vote as probably the primary reason because during that time, um, the state officials, of course you know they were all white, they were very angry because daddy preached the fact that if we have a voice in selecting people like congressmen and senators and other people who are working at the state capitol and in, in the, the uh, counties as well, like the sheriff, that we would be able to approach them when things of this nature happened and demand that they do something about it. But before that time, we could only vote in the uh, presidential election. And that was no good because the electoral votes, <laughs> you know, they control that anyway. So that is why he was determined that we needed to have a voice in government or we could not move forward. Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore were the first martyrs of the contemporary civil rights movement, but their legacy is often mistakenly overlooked. Discussions about the civil rights movement usually begin with the landmark U.S. Supreme Court case Brown v. the Board of Education. The decision in that case called for racial integration in 1954. Since the Moors were murdered in 1951, they are frequently forgotten. The Moors were killed more than 12 years before Medgar Evers, 14 years before Malcolm X, and 17 years before Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Recent scholarship is beginning to place the contemporary civil rights movement back to the 1940s and even the 1930s, so perhaps the future will be kinder to the Moors' memory. Ben Green. I still think we have a big job ahead of us because even though here in Brevard County, the word is starting to get out, and in Orange County, and little you know, pockets around um, the state, there are still thousands and thousands and thousands of people, probably just in Brevard County alone, who have no idea who Harrington Young was. Several million, millions of people in Florida who still don't know, and around the country, you know, obviously many millions more. But we're little by little, hopefully, making a dent in that. You can visit the Moore home site at 2180 Freedom Avenue in Mims, where there is a memorial park and a civil rights museum placing the Moors and their work in an historical context and celebrating their legacy. When will people in Jesus' name and when will they by prayer know that each one has the right to stand up everywhere? When will people, for the sake of peace and the sake of democracy, 
know that no bomb you can make can stop us from being free. It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth, his voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for, freedom never dies. So if you see our Harry Moore walking on a Christmas night, don't you fear and run and hide, he has no dynamite. For in his heart is only love for all the human race. All he wants is for each of us to have our rightful place. And this he says, our Harry Moore, as from the grave he cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out details about our annual meeting, listen to archived editions of this program, become a member of the Florida Historical Society, and much more. Many people walk the beaches of Florida's Treasure Coast hoping to find some gold or silver from the Spanish shipwrecks washed ashore. As Janie Gould reports, some of those finds are on display at the McClarty Treasure Museum in Sebastian Inlet State Park. Okay, it's just a dollar each to go in. Our movie has just started over again for the day. A steady stream of people visited the McClarty Treasure Museum on a recent weekday. They came to learn about the Spanish plate fleet that sank in a hurricane nearly three centuries ago. A thousand crewmen perished in the storm, but amazingly, another 1,400 made it to shore. They set up a camp where the museum is today. That camp vanished long ago. All traces of the doomed ships seemed to vanish, too. Then, in the mid-20th century, a beachcomber named Kip Wagner found a freshwater well on the site. Ed Perry is a park ranger at the museum. His dog stopped to take a drink of water from the well, and he thought, well, something's going on with this area. He cut a little hole in his surfboard, and he put a, a piece of glass in the surfboard and paddled out back. Lo and behold, he saw cannon laying on the bottom. Wagner and others, most notably the late Mel Fisher, started salvaging the wrecks in the 1960s. Gold, silver, and jewelry worth millions have been recovered. Coins, weapons, utensils, and the cannon itself are among the items on display at the McClarty Museum. And there's more treasure to be seen at the Mel Fisher Museum in Sebastian. Barbara Evers volunteers at the McClarty Museum. All this stuff. 
I'm constantly amazed at how many people do not realize the history in their backyard. So much gold and silver was lost when the ships went down that Spain went into economic decline. A lot of the sunken loot still hasn't been found. It's illegal to treasure hunt on the dunes, and Fisher's Company has the rights to anything in the ocean. But on the beach itself, that's another story. Get your metal detector and go for it. If you think the Treasure Coast is not yielding up treasure, our latest find was April 6th of this year. It was a belt buckle from a Spaniard that was found by one of our treasure salvers who also hunts on the beach. And in February, we also had a couple that was up by the inlet, and they found an eight real, which is a piece of eight. Earlier this year, someone hit the jackpot on the beach. We have a local lady who lives in Sebastian. She's always out looking for shark's teeth. She had a little three ninety nine scoopy net from Walmart. She's looking for the shark's teeth and going in the shells and tossing them. Finally, she sees this piece at the bottom of the net. She showed it to the lifeguard, and he says, close your hand, shut your mouth, get in your car, lock the door, and get out of here. Turns out that the largest emerald ever found on the 1715 fleet was a 20-plus carat emerald. This young lady walks in off the beach with a 67.28 carat emerald. Oh, my gosh. Talk about a great day at the beach. And she gets to put it in her pocket and go home. She does not owe any tax to the state of Florida, and she does not have to turn it over to Mel Fisher as a find because she found it on the beach. The Salvas have told me that there is at least one wreck for every mile out there, and everything has got to come ashore sometime. The McClarty Treasure Museum is on Highway A1A, about 35 miles north of Fort Pierce. It's open every day from 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Public beach accesses are just north and south of the museum property. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Blues music is one of America's truly indigenous music forms and was once a prominent voice in African American culture. In more recent decades, other popular music forms have overshadowed traditional blues music. Bill Dudley talks with some musicians trying to keep the blues alive in North Florida. It's a full house at the Bradfordville Blues Club on the outskirts of Tallahassee. And tonight, several local performers are devoting an evening to exploring the background to the blues. The main thing is to understand that the blues is coming from the fields, it's coming from the church. There's jumps, there's field hollers, there's songster ballads, church music, African rhythms. It's all mixed together. And uh, and you come up with a, a, a gumbo that's your own and it's filtered through your own soul 
all the way out. Randall Big Daddy Webster is a founding member of the Appalachian Blues Society, a group that stages a three-day Freedom Blues Festival held each year in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on the grounds around the Blues Club. Well, they got me killed of murder oh, I ain't never on the main one of the area's most distinguished performers is blues veteran and FSU professor of music Charles Adkins. Recognized by the state of Florida with the 2002 Folk Heritage Award, he directs the university's nationally known Blues Lab. Adkins is also one of the few African Americans in the club this night. Most accounts say that it started out as a kind of an antidote to heal the hearts and spirits of black people that felt in some way oppressed or denied. That's normally where you hear blues came on the scene. Out of slavery, hard times, misunderstandings between the cultures. All right, I'll say, I'm your child, and you say, I'm your child. Tonight, Atkins is teaching the audience to sing a call and response gospel song, one of the many roots of modern blues. I'm your child, I'm your child, Lord, send me. It's not easy to find the Bradfordville Blues Club. Down a rutted dirt road on land owned since the Civil War by two black farming families, the cement block building has a lot of history for local music lovers, according to Michael Rouse, the Blues Society's current president. Minstrels used to come on, the, on these grounds in the 1800s and play music here, from what I understand. This building has been used for music for decades, and blues has been played here for a long, long time. Definitely a country juke joint. And I came down these dirt roads, and I'm going, no, I can't be going in the right place. And I come up here, and there's this concrete bunker surrounded by these moss-dripping oaks in the middle of nowhere. Gary Antone is a Tallahassee attorney and blues aficionado. He and his wife, along with two other couples, took over the blues club a year ago. And I walked in. I was in hog heaven. I couldn't believe it. There was a juke joint in my backyard that was playing blues. And uh, on any given weekend, my wife and I would be sitting on the corner of the bar. We just became uh, regulars here. We love it. John Copps demonstrates the mournful sound of the diddly bow, a primitive single-stringed instrument historically played by musicians too poor to afford even a guitar or banjo. But no longer considered a means of finding relief from suffering, today the blues is strictly show business. Blues has come on the scene to mean some different things lately. It means entertainment. So. That's a good and positive thing, but this is my 13th year in teaching uh, Blues Lab, and I, I hate to testify that in those 13 years, uh, I know I've had hundreds of whites, students, but if I had 20 blacks, I'd be surprised. Do you think this will change? Oh, God, I'm, I'm praying. I'm praying that it does. But in an age where mainstream African-American culture no longer identifies with the blues, Charles Atkins still holds out hope for change. If only his music could find wider exposure among his own people. You know, years, years ago when they had a function going on in the community, in the black community, they would go around with a bullhorn on top of a car and tell everybody about it. It really did the job. <laughs> Maybe... 
Sometimes some of the things we put away, we shouldn't put away. Thank you. Um, let, me, let me just say thank you all for coming and uh, being with us tonight. You're bringing the blues back, and that's where it ought to be. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. The Florida Historical Society is holding its annual meeting in Pensacola, May 21st through 23rd, to celebrate the 450th anniversary of the first attempted colony in Florida. There will be great presentations by Florida historians and exciting historic and environmental tours. To find out more about the event, go to myfloridahistory.org and click on Annual Meeting. And join us again next week for Florida Frontiers. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.